I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Jasleen Kaur, candidate for New York City Council District 23. Jasleen has lived in this community for her entire life, and she's really passionate about fighting for the working people there. We start our conversation off with Jasleen explaining what drives her leadership and why she was inspired to run for office in the first place. So here is Jocelyn Kaur. So you're running for city council, District 23 in Queens. Was there a particular issue in your community that pushed you to run? Something that made you angry, something that you were passionate about? What pushed you into this race? Yeah, you know, for me, I never saw myself as someone who wanted to run for office, but I think I was really just tired of having a kind of government that doesn't actually respond to the working people. So for me, I am the daughter of a taxi driver. My dad has been a taxi driver for nearly 30 years now, but we have been dealing with a taxi medallion debt crisis for about seven years at this point. And so I look back at points in my life, like back in 2014, where the markets were being inflated artificially by medallion brokers who were really preying on a majority of immigrant working class people who thought that a taxi medallion would be a really worthwhile investment. It was worth a mil- close to a million dollars back in the 90s and into the early 2000s. So when that market tanked, we came under almost hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt almost overnight. And it has been devastating for so many families that are close to us, our neighbors, our family friends. And you know, when you look at the state of our city, these are the kinds of workers who generate millions of dollars worth of revenue for our city. But don't have a pension, don't have a retirement fund, and you get people like my father who are 62 years old and still working these 14-hour shifts in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, I see myself as somebody who really wants to champion the rights of many of our gig economy workers who have just been categorically left out of our political process. How does this align with what's happening in the gig economy in relation to Uber and other kind of gig economy, you know, services? A lot of the reason actually of, you know, why the taxi medallion kind of issue came about also had to do with Uber and Lyft entering the New York market, right? Entering New York City and suddenly being a new business uh, operation here. And so, you know, for us, a lot of a lot of these gig workers, for them, the issue is really about not being classified as a full-time employee or not being classified as a full employee. They're contracted workers. So a lot of those p- protections that are built in to being a full employee are completely left out. And who makes up the majority of our, of our gig economy? It's often immigrant working people who don't really have somebody in their corner to fight for them. So this is like a nexus of people who also don't qualify for federal pandemic relief because there's just so much red tape to cut through, whether it's your immigration status, how long you've lived in the U.S., or other factors. And these are the people who are the lifeblood of New York City, whether it's taxi drivers, street vendors, delivery workers, even small businesses. So it's only gotten a lot worse for many of our gig economy workers under this pandemic. And unless we really prioritize uh, relief without kicking the can down to the federal government, right? That, that's usually what happens. You ask a city legislator, what can I do? They kick it up to, say, Governor Cuomo. If you tell Governor Cuomo, what can we do for economy workers? They say, well, it goes back to the federal government. So, you know, you're often just having a loop of conversations without really any solutions. All right. Well, speaking of the federal government versus what happens locally, I know one of the issues that you're really passionate about is the minimum wage, the $15 minimum wage. And that's something that's kind of on my radar because I live in Seattle and we were one of the first 
you know, places to pass a $15 minimum wage. But now, you know, it's going nationally. And I'm just curious as to, you know, the district that you're in, Mm -hmm. what the temperature is around the $15 minimum wage, because you have a lot of small businesses, you know, like bodegas and other small businesses that this may be, you know, more difficult for. Yeah. So for us, there are a lot of immigrant businesses and small family owned businesses that have completely shuttered during this pandemic. You take a walk down, say, Hillside Avenue or even Jamaica Avenue, where we have an even higher concentration of black and brown owned businesses. There's such a rich Caribbean, Haitian, Guyanese, and South Asian population in that part of our district. And it looks like they may never open without that kind of relief. And that's a scary prospect because that's often the only, you know, a stream of income for many of these families, and they just don't they just don't qualify for so many of this, these different kinds of relief. But I do think that there has been a really exciting movement at the federal level. Um, Joe Biden had actually um, just announced uh, like a, a better qualification for workers for businesses that have under twenty employees, and there's a little bit less red tape around that right now. Actually, I, I heard about this from AOC's campaign today, so it's moving slowly, but. You know, clearly it looks like people just just can't wait long enough. It's been extremely depressing to have to try to canvas and talk to small business owners, but they're not even there in the storefront. And to see street after street where people just aren't able to work the same jobs that they've probably been working for decades at a time, right? These are reliable places that people go to because it's their corner store. It's a place that they've always known. That's a terrifying prospect. And so there's been some really incredible movement across our city even to demand a $15 wage. Many of our unions are demanding a $15 minimum wage for many of our fast food workers. But if we actually look at you know how the economy needs to catch up, we could really be demanding a $25 minimum wage. That's really what we should be casting our, casting our bets towards. So Hopefully New York City catches up to Seattle at some point real soon. You know, I just realized when I asked that question that many of the small businesses like directly in your community may be too small for that requirement. I mean, I don't know what the the cutoff is for the $15 minimum wage. Do you know what it is offhand that's being proposed at least right now nationally? Uh, I don't know at this point, although I know Joe Biden had um, mentioned that you know, maybe the threshold should be down to lower than 20 employees because currently at the city and state level, a small business is classified as having under 100 employees. And there's so many businesses that don't even meet anything close to that at all. Right. I was just wondering how we would, you know, reconcile, you know, the businesses, small businesses are struggling right now due to the pandemic, but they also, you know, Mm -hmm. if they can reopen and let's hope hope many of them can reopen, they would then be required to pay Mm -hmm. this $15 minimum wage. And that's just a really difficult thing to balance, you know, in some of these communities. You know, if you were to win, you would be the first, you know, the youngest person to win this in this this position. You would also be the first South Mm -hmm. Asian person to ever be elected to the New York City City Council. How has the political climate, especially in relation to race, you know, what we saw at the Capitol, you know, this kind of white nationalist uprising, Mm -hmm. do you think that that's affected your run on the ground and kind of the climate that you're running in? Yeah, you know, I'm really glad you you brought that up, actually. Just the other day in the news, it was reported that one of the people who went to the Capitol riots went all the way to D.C. and was supporting Trump actually lives in my neighborhood in Glen Oaks in in District 23. Um, And around the corner. Yeah, just a couple of blocks away from me. So it's it's really scary to think about how white supremacy, even in a, a district that is home to a plurality of people of color, is still thriving, is still festering out here. So that alone just is terrifying to many people. And 
you know, I think, you know, for us, this district has just changed so much where, you know, it, it, my, my hometown itself was started by World War II veterans. And this is where people settled. This is where they grew up. And generations of families have come after that. But now we're actually home to the third largest Asian immigrant population in the entire city as of 2017. So for me, I think what's really key is that the change in leadership needs to reflect the change in the community too. And we've had so many parts of our district that went close to 90% for Joe Biden in the general election uh, in 2020, just this past year. We've had so many incredible precincts that went hard for candidates like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Tiffany Caban, some of these incredible superstars who have really shifted um, and, and paved a path for people like me to run in the first place. And so for me, you know, it's not really even just about knocking out a number of historic firsts. It's about championing historic policies that are actually going to respond to the needs of our community. So, you know, we're really trying to activate uh, new Democrats, people who were emboldened after Trump got elected in 2016 to say, no, I actually want my vote to matter and flip something that has just been so horrible to many of our immigrant communities. And I, th- I do believe it's it's absolutely possible to win that here. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's in your that's in your campaign policy or your campaign platform, rather, is that you talk a lot about um, gender justice and you have a focus on that. And there is a backlog Mm. of Title IX cases within the New York Department of Education. Right. Presumably these are mostly, you know, sexual assault or sexual violence and gender discrimination cases. And that reminded me that, you know, during the primary, the Democratic primary, Vice President Harris mentioned that one of her policy focuses was to clear the backlog of sexual assault cases nationally. So I was really happy to see that as a part of your platform. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's always being pushed to the background, right? Um, especially, you know, we have, when we have an economic crisis, we have a pandemic. That's something that we rarely focus on. What are your plans around that? What, mm-hmm. what do you plan to change for that in your community? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's a, a significant amount of oversight that our city council can have over the Department of Education because a lot of these cases get processed through the DOE Office of Civil Rights. And so the first time I, I looked through I found out that the university I attended had actually violated Title IX twice. And so it's clear that there's just not a salient measure for accountability for many of these schools that continue to violate a fundamental civil right for many students. And what was most jarring about this backlog was that there were some cases that go as far back as 2015, which means that students have probably graduated without ever having a justice mechanism laid out for them, or they just dropped out of school entirely. So for us, inclu- you know, increasing the amount of city council oversight over these cases is really going to close the educational gap for many of our students who report, but just never hear back from the Office of Civil Rights, who report, but their schools are really never held accountable. So it's this two-pronged approach of how can the city council actually um, preside over the Office of Civil Rights? And how do we hold s- schools accountable when their student misconduct codes are actually not in line with state policies that mandate um, that students have some of the most fundamental protections like uh, mental health accommodations, support, uh, financial support, whether they're dealing with student loans, and just general well-beings of students' lives. And I think that's how we make sure that survivor justice, gender justice, that's also uh, absolutely interwoven with our missions for education justice and education equity, which is you know, even more important in New York City, where we have perhaps the most segregated system, uh, school system in the entire country. You know, I want to talk about the vaccine rollout in your community because it's something that's on everyone's mind. And depending on where you live, the rollout may or may not be equitable. So what's it like in East Queens? It's been so difficult uh, in East Queens, you know, and it's like a, a two-pronged issue, right? Not only do we have 
one of the largest senior populations in the entire city. Like at District 23 is home to over 20% of seniors, uh, but we're also a transportation desert. So for many seniors, uh, you know, many of them don't drive or don't have someone to rely on or can't pay uh, a $40 Uber to go all the way to City Field. That's you know so many miles away for them, right? And um, you know we're just not servicing the people who just need to be vaccinated first. And it took months of outreach to the New York City mayor, to Governor Cuomo, to actually say that, you know, we actually need more local vaccination sites to get people, to get the numbers that we're actually shooting for and actually end this pandemic. And I think that's even more just devastating how horrible their outreach has been to our senior communities, especially in different languages, given that, um, you know, we have a senior home in the district, Parker Jewish Institute, that was actually found now that the data has been released publicly from Governor Cuomo's office, was actually found to have the mo- the highest rate of COVID-19 deaths across all senior homes in New York City. That is, that is so devastating and it's morally corrupt. And so many people have just become attuned to just how horribly mismanaged this COVID-19 pandemic has been at Governor Cuomo's hands because he has left the city without the powers to, to do, do the jobs themselves. So for me, this is just deeply important from, an, from a stance of just how are we handling a public health crisis and how can we actually just equip our cities to be the ones in control of keeping us up to standard and not being the face of shame from the rest of the country and the rest of the world on just how horribly we've handled this pandemic. So how would help from the federal level actually help in your community specifically? Because I know that in the previous administration, you know, they, they basically abandoned local communities in this regard. It's been so tough because we're really just at the edge of New York City, right? But, you know, there, there's a cadre of people in this district who are relatively well off. They're doing pretty fine and don't really have many concerns about uh, whether it's economic relief or needing to keep their housing, right? And so, you know, I'm really excited to, you know, see that maybe uh, this next administration with the leadership of Kamala Harris and with Joe Biden that, you know, we'll get that small business relief, that we'll get the actual COVID-19 vaccines, right? The actual distributed number of vaccines to actually meet the needs and goals that we have for every month, that we're supporting our seniors and getting more direct senior services, that we're classifying our gig economy workers as full-time employees, and that we're getting the kind of bailout that we need for, for people like my father, right? Taxi drivers who are just waiting for our federal government to pass bills that even uh, Representative Gregory Meeks is putting forward to say that, uh, you know, we, we need to finally close this gap. We actually need our people to be serviced. We need a federal government that doesn't stall the plans at the state and local and local level. And I think this is just what the job of a city councilor is supposed to do, to do this co-governance at every rung of the ladder uh, and make sure that you know our communities just aren't left behind. And so whether it's for our seniors, for our youth, I'm really committed to making sure that we're securing dignity at every stage of life. Well, Dustin Carr, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for all the hard work you've done on behalf of your community. I I wish you all in your campaign. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak with you today. And I'm really excited to hopefully cross the finish line on June 22nd for a primary election.